Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of the SEPAD podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ariel Ahram, Associate Professor in Virginia Tech School of Public and International Affairs, a non-senior resident fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute, and also a recipient of a, a generous Carnegie Corporation uh, grant. So, Ariel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. And it, it's wonderful to be seeing the, the work that you've been doing recently on on states, on sovereignty, on irredentism, secessionism. And I know that you've got a new book coming out. Indeed. Uh, the book is called Break All the Borders. Uh, it's coming out with Oxford University Press in uh, early 2019 in February, I believe. Wonderful. So, so, Ariel, how did you get to that point then? It sounds like quite a, a specific uh, focus, quite a fascinating focus of, of the fragmentation of states and, and state sovereignty. What, what took you there? I have been working almost my entire career on Iraq. And one of the, at the center point of Iraq is a contestation about sovereignty and about who should ultimately control the state and where those borders should be. After the uprisings in 2011, I noticed that many countries were looking more and more like Iraq, that there were movements of national disintegration appearing more powerfully in Yemen, in Libya, which no one really expected, and also, of course, in, in Syria. I wanted to make sense of these movements, and especially to explain why some countries were more affected by this kind of centripetal pressure than others. Why is it that we see separatists appear in Iraq, in, in Yemen, in Libya, and Syria, but not in Tunisia, Egypt, Bahrain, or other countries that were sure. equally affected by the uprisings? Wonderful. I mean, it, it's fascinating stuff. The, the, the myriad competing forces, the centrifugal forces that, that mean that you get this type of, of output, this type of result in certain places, but not in others. So, I mean, you've said that you've done a lot of work on Iraq, but, but what got you interested in this more, more generally? What, what, did you, what did you study at university? I was very lucky as an undergraduate at Brandeis University, right. just outside of Boston, to work in a department that had not one but two Iraq specialists. Amazing. Uh, in, in, the, in the late 1990s in the United States, there may have been 20 Iraq specialists uh, in the whole country, maybe 30 and two of them happened to be at the Department of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis. Um, Yitzhak Nakash, who is a historian of Iraq, particularly of Iraqi Shias, uh, and Kanan Makia, who had been a, a political activist and a, uh, an, an architect, in fact, in his earlier career, and moved into academia and became more, more and more astute uh, political analyst of the situations in, in Iraq and in, in the rest of the Arab world. And so... When uh, when it became time to think about what I was interested in doing and what I what I wanted to do, I think that there were many options that I had. I, I thought about studying Russian. Uh, I had there were there were sort of personal reasons to not go into Russian. Sure. Um, but late in my late late in my undergraduate career, year three and year four, when it became time to think about what I would do an undergraduate thesis about, uh, Iraq was sort of right in front of me, and I felt like that was a unique opportunity that that other people were not going to have. There were plenty of people who were going to write undergraduate theses, uh, do undergraduate research on Egypt, on Morocco, 
uh, on Jordan, but there were not many people who were interested in Iraq at that time, and so I, I jumped at that chance. Sure. Can I ask you a rather delicate question then? What year sure. was your uh, was your undergraduate thesis written? I'm sorry. Say that again. What year was your undergraduate ah. thesis? So I submitted my undergraduate thesis in May 2011, uh, 2001. Right. Okay. So this is this is before everything changed, before 9-11, before the, the U.S.-led invasion. So you really were doing something different to others then? I, I, think, I thought that I did. And in fact, when I completed my degree, I had a degree in, um, in Islamic studies, uh, Islamic studies, history and, 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 and politics. And I finished the degree and I had been studying Arabic for a while, but I, I thought there's really no, there's no real future in this for me. Uh, I have to go and get a real job. And I ended <laughs> up working in a, in a government agency doing nothing at all uh, right. to do with the Middle East uh, for a couple of years. Um, because it looked in in May 2000, 2001, um, there were it didn't look like there was much to do in this this world in in, the, in this realm. Of course, that changed very dramatically uh, in in September two thousand one. But um, you know that, that that was not that was not a, a, on my horizon. Sure. So, what was it in your in your dissertation, your your undergraduate dissertation that that really pulled you back to academia later on then? I was working in Washington in 2001. I was in Washington uh, during September 11th. I uh, remember quite vividly, of course, evacuating my my offices and and um, you know, going home and really being very surprised and not knowing what to do. Mm. Um, but I also, as the the year as as the year and this this job that I had for two years um, continued, I found that I was taking night school Arabic classes that had nothing whatsoever to do with my uh, with my professional trajectory. Right and. And as I started to think about what I really wanted to do for my career, I thought if I'm continuing if I'm continuing to take night school Arabic classes that have nothing to do at all with anything that I can that I'm doing professionally, perhaps I should think about making that uh, my career. And sure. uh, and I came back to it, so to speak. Right. So it obviously had quite a, a big impact on you then this this degree, this this dissertation, and that that prompted you to go back to back to Brandeis, was it? Uh, no, I went. Uh, I went to Georgetown for graduate work. I did a, a joint master's in Arab studies and PhD in government at right. Georgetown, uh, which happened to be in Washington. Sure. Uh, so I was able to stay in the same apartment and 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 kind of continue my life at the same time. Wonderful, an added bonus. Yes. And when I graduated in two thousand in two thousand eight uh, with my PhD, I I took a job uh, as an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma. I taught at, at Oklahoma for four years, and then um, came to Virginia Tech School of Public International Affairs, which uh, is also in the in the DC in the DC area. Sure, and and there seems to be a without knowing what your or your undergraduate dissertation was on, there seems to be a bit of a, a trend. In this interest in, in political organization and political sovereignty, then that that seems to be running across your work, albeit coming out in slightly different ways. One of the most pleasing things for me in writing my most recent book and writing Break All the Borders was that it pushed me to go back to some materials that I had had read in the mid nineteen nineties uh, about Iraq and Syria. Uh, it pushed me to rethink some of the things that I had, had some of the assumptions that I had as a as a 19, 20 year old who had done almost no travel in the region, who, sure. who was still uh, uh, really, really a, a novice. And I was um, 
in some some instances, I was really pleased with some of the assumptions and some of the thoughts that I had, and sometimes I was uh, uh, shocked uh, how naive I was in some of these things. But it was it was really gratifying to be able to think of some of the to go back to the core questions that I had really been asking at least uh, since I was since I, I had been an undergraduate, which is what makes these countries hold together and how how do people reimagine these countries and 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 what are the alternative political organizations that might emerge if these countries uh, should should disappear or 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 face a crisis? Sure, and I guess it would be remiss of me to ask you for the answer. Right? I guess I should encourage people to to buy your book when it's out to get the full answer. But if you're going to give us a little teaser, what would you say then? A teaser. Uh, I think a, a teaser. A teaser about this book. A teaser of the argument is that. Not every Arab country faces the same kinds of pressures, that they're not all prone to break apart into a million pieces, that the political movements for secession, for separatism in the region stem from relatively recent 20th century experiences of having having had autonomy, having had a state and losing it. And much of the political contestation in the region regarding borders especially, hinges on the idea of reconstituting, reinstating political entities that had been conquered or lost uh, really since the end of World War One. Right, okay, so that's absolutely fascinating. And I know that in the book you you draw on a number of different case studies to, to really bring all of this to life. So I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to, to reading this and seeing how you, you weave all these different conceptual, theoretical and empirical themes and questions together. But Ariel, you, you mentioned a couple of uh, the opportunity to go back and reread a couple of the books that you'd first encountered as an undergraduate. What were they, please, if I may? Uh, I th- well, I think at the center, um, at, the, at the center is this is the very short piece that uh, Nicholas Van Damme wrote about Middle East political cliches, uh, the Sunni, I've, I've forgotten exactly the title now, but the the assumption that Iraq under Saddam was a Sunni dominated state and uh, and Syria was an Alawi dominated state uh, that had been kind of a central assumption uh, in 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 much of in much of the international in much of the international community's engagement with both Iraq and Syria during sure. Saddam's reign after the fall of Saddam and during the revolution in Syria and and uh, um, Van Dam. Um, who have, of course, had been the, an ambassador who had, you know, traveled widely in both countries, um, really pointed out that there was a much more complicated kind of political dynamic that generated different forms of loyalty and allegiances, and consequently, we shouldn't just assume that the, that these states were were kind of ethnic were were, eth- were ethnicized from the beginning, but that they were ethnicized in a process and in particular ways that sometimes we're more sustainable and more more solid than others and that that's fascinating thinking that thinking back immediately to say some of the work of previous guests such as Nader Hashemi and Danny Pastel that 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 claim that you're recounting from Van Damme bears a number of similarities to their claim about sectarianization and the way in which some of those sectarianizing uh, moves find success or, or fail as a consequence of socioeconomic, political, contingent contexts. Uh, it's fascinating looking back on that. Yes, and, uh, and of course, um, Postel and Hashemi, these are people's work who I, I admire a great deal, and I think that they've done a, a, great, a great deal to move the, move the argument forward 
and talk about the specific uh, social dynamics that lead to sectarian conceptions. I, for me, one of the big questions about Iraq, and it's still really the big question, is how can you have? Is it possible to have a, a state that is sectarian without having people that are sectarian? Yes. Uh, do you, can you have sectarianism without sectarians? Uh, I've, as I said, I've worked a great deal on Iraq. I've worked with some of the the, the Saddam Hussein archives. I've written a great deal about the the destruction of the marshes in southern Iraq, and one of the the. One of the problems, I think, in our in the analysis has been how do we explain a regime that hardly ever talked about sect internally? How do we explain the fact that it acted in such such blatantly and sometimes overtly sectarian manner? Mm. And I think that there we that forces us to reconsider this process, the, the assumptions of sectarianism, and, and 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 think about it as a process, as in sectarianization. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm certainly sympathetic to to that position. But I wonder, if I may, if, if we just speculate slightly then, how do you think you can resolve that tension of having a state that is sectarian without people who are sectarian? How do you avoid that, that challenge and, and the potential ramifications of either a tyranny of the majority or a tyranny of the minority? What, what can we do here? This is a question that I've, I've that's come up a great deal in my uh, current the class that I'm teaching currently on Middle East geopolitics. Sure. And I have several students in this class who are from the region. I have Egyptians, uh, Bahrainis, Sudanese, um, two Kurds, an Afghan. Uh, so we have uh, we have a, a, wi- a wide variety of perspectives and several different sectarian groups represented right. in that in that class. It sounds a lively bunch. Uh, it is a lively bunch. The. And there's a good deal of, I think, uh, uh, political resistance to the idea of sectarianism. Uh, in this is true in my class. It's also true, I think, in the region that no one wants, no one is willing to adopt the sectarian label. No one, no one embraces it. Sure. I do think, though, that there is the there is an idea of of privilege, that there certain states have been established in the region with that to specifically to favor certain sects. Uh, whether it's whether these are whether these are for sectar- for specifically sectarian reasons or perhaps for more reasons of kind of political or economic convenience, and once that favoritism, once that default assumption is built into the the, the way governance acts, then that group will always see itself as, as is it will always see itself as having a special claim to the state. Whether they think of it as sectarian a sectarian claim or not, it's still a special and unique claim to, to dominance. Sure, and I think about it in some respects. In the United States, there is a discussion about uh, about white privilege. Right, that you can you can operate in the world without thinking of yourself as having a specific ethnicity, and yet still benefit from from your ethnicity. And I, I think that there, there is there is something uh, analogous uh, in 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 many Middle Eastern countries, uh, Muslim and non-Muslim. I think that's a really good way of putting it, actually. For 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 those people who struggle to actually identify or struggle to understand it, that that uh, that parallel with white privilege, I think, is is really excellent. Ariel, one of the reasons why I like your work so much is that it it tries to move beyond these these hugely important questions of of, of sectarian difference and and violence to get to to what I think are more existential. Uh, questions about the very nature of politics, but you you ground them, and I think this is one of the things that I, I really admire about you and your work, and why I'm keen to to follow your your Carnegie project. But 
I wonder, what have you reflected on? What, where have you got to with your understanding of, of states and sovereignty then? Having done all of this different work on Iraq and Libya and, and Yemen and other places, what, what do you see as the state and the sovereign state at present? Do you see that the ideas of, of sovereignty and statehood are actually useful or, or should we be looking elsewhere for something slightly different? That is an interesting question, and it brings me back to the origins of my my doctoral dissertation. I'll, I'll give you a bit of an intellectual biography. So when Wonderful. I started when I started my doctoral program in two thousand three, it was uh, right at the beginning of the Iraq War, and what I saw when I was watching Jazeera and and and, and doing my own research in Iraq, uh, I, at the same time that I was doing that, I was reading Max Weber, and I was thinking about this monopoly over the use of force. Sure, but I was realizing that that. The processes that were going on in Iraq were almost the exact opposite. And not just that this was a state that had lost the monopoly of the use of force and was trying to retrieve it, but that there were agents within with, within Iraq, Americans, Iraqis, who were actively trying to cede the monopoly over the use of force. They were actively trying to devolve control over violence to armed non-state actors. Right. It wasn't just in Iraq. It was also uh, – I also was noticing it in Sudan. Uh, and at the time, the, the term Janjaweed had just appeared in the in the Arabic lexicon uh, so, yeah. to describe militia groups that were acting at the behest of the government, but but not not technically part of the army or the police or, or under the control of them. That is what made me think seriously about states. I had never really thought about states before, and that to me is at the center of my my at the center of my theoretical discussions is what what do states do. How do they operate and where do they come from? Hmm. I think that sovereignty is a great thing if you can get it. Uh, but it is, a, it is a, as if any institution is an institution that provides unequal benefits, that those groups that have sovereignty receive special kinds of rewards for having it, and those groups that don't uh, are left out of the are left in the cold, those groups that cannot claim uh, that don't get the same kind of benefits from statehood um, sometimes suffer from statehood. I think that. It is worth. I think that we're now at the point in the policy discussion where it's worth discussion. It's worth considering options beyond sovereignty. The policy community, and I, I don't just mean the U.S. security community, but but also the development world, the World Bank, um, is obsessed with state building in some form or another. The assumption has been all good things come with states, security, economic development, political development, democracy, all come. Uh, in conjunction with states. And so focusing on building effective states is the key. But I think that those roads for many groups are, are blocked. In many occasions, there's, we're not going to, we should not expect to see strong, effective, responsive states appear. And we should be exploring next best options, um, whether those are different kinds of political arrangements, whether, whether they involve confederacies of various kinds, whether it's de facto statehood, uh, I think that that the 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 cost of pursuing statehood is is mounting, and the benefits are are uncertain. I agree. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear you say that because you're you're raising there, I guess, a number of really deep theoretical points about the, I guess, the supremacy or the perceived supremacy of the Western model. I guess a, a form of Orientalism that this this Western model of statehood predicated upon the the Westphalian model is 
is the ideal form. It's it's the way to go, and that's how all states, all political projects should aspire to that and evolve in that way. And that that seems somewhat problematic for me, given the the complexity of of political organisation across the Middle East, for example. It's it's so rich, it's so varied, and it doesn't have to look anything like this Westphalian sovereign state. One of the things that I discuss is that our model, the Weberian model, that is often taken uh, taken as the kind of uh, the ultimate end goal, is in fact itself a, a form of political myth. Um, the sociologist Michael Mann says that historically most states have not even claimed the monopoly over the use of force, much less pursued it. Uh, that, that and Weber himself, writing in Munich, or speaking in Munich in 1919 when he presented this model, was was living in the midst of a state that had had failed dramatically. Uh, so it's so I think he, a lot of his this idea of monopoly over the use of force is aspirational to begin <laughs> sure. with. Yeah, um, and there are a, a, a wide variety of, of of different political forms. I'm I'm not. I, I don't like to divide it into a Western and Eastern political form or a Western and then kind of non-Western development political form. One of the things that has impressed me in my work on separatist movements is how readily um, and eagerly some political agents have adopted this Western model. They say, well, if, if we could only get sovereignty for Palestine, if we could only get sovereignty for Kurdistan, if we could only get sovereignty for Southern Yemen, then we could solve all of these problems because we would become a normal a normal state like the rest, and I think they might be the last, uh, the last true believers in sovereignty. Those who have been denied it right. um, are the last, are, are, the, are the last to give up the give up the hope. Sure. Um, and I, which is which is not to say that 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 uh, states don't matter. I I benefit from the a really powerful, effective, and and more or less responsive state uh, as as an American, but. It came about through a series of kind of historical contingencies, and the idea that it's going to be replicated elsewhere, I think, is 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 unlikely. I think that there are probably other models that can provide political benefits, uh, that can provide protection, that can provide economic development in forms that we may not recognize yet, and it's worth uh, exploring those forms. And that's where I think your your work is absolutely imperative. It's really central, really essential, and really important. You raise a number of really fascinating points in in the work that you've done, and I'm sure this this latest book will continue to do that. But one very quick little anecdote, just before we we wrap this up, when I was talking to people in Lebanon about sovereignty, what was really interesting was that a, a large number of them brought up this barbarian model as something that they were aspiring to. I mentioned the word sovereignty, and it became almost synonymous with the barbarian model. Yeah, um, I, I am, and I think you, Lebanon is another example of of a, of a place that um, has had its sovereignty impugned and impinged so often that um, you know, having been denied it, uh, it becomes the thing that people people want the most. One of the reasons, though, I think, is that the international community has um, actively undermined the possibilities of alternative modes. Right. Um, ignored them, denied them, let them, raise them, and then dash them, um, use them opportunistically, and then and then dispatch with them. Um, Stephen Krasner famously called sovereignty the or- form of organized hypocrisy. I think he he didn't even capture the, the half of it in that in that yeah. phrasing. Yeah, um, exactly. 
and I think in the, in that sense, I think breaking the kind of intellectual logjam is a important task for the next the next the next few decades. Um, if if we admit that certain kinds of states are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, then I think we can at least we can at least proceed uh, to to think about some 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 other models. The example, so you use the example of Lebanon, which is, of course, a kind of a weak state, but I, I flip it over. I think about uh, those who live, who grew up uh, in Iraq in the 80s and 90s, which was a, in some respects, an extremely strong state, uh, but a state that provided very selective kinds of benefits to very specific kinds of people. And worse than that, was quite murderous uh, to others. Uh, and so how do we square that? If there's that the cost, are we willing to bear the co- that kind of cost for statehood? And I think, to, to my mind, I think the answer is, in many cases, probably not. Uh, but what is the alternative? And I guess the the way to find that alternative is, as you say, to break the intellectual logjam. And I'm sure that there are going to be um, few others who will be doing as much to contribute to that as as you and your work and and your work with uh, with Ranj and Carnegie and. I think that's absolutely central to to breaking this logjam that you you continue with with your your explorations. So, Ariel, thank you so much for for coming on the the uh, the show. It's been wonderful to have you on. Fascinating discussions. So, thank you again so much for giving up your time. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really fascinating discussion. So, thank you very much. And until next time. <laughs>